Good morning, church. Beautiful, glorious time in worship. Uh, Just a glimpse of what we will one day do all together with the church in one body before the Lord. What a beautiful picture that we're able to celebrate here on earth in this place before we're able to, to spend eternity with the Lord. As many of you know, last week we were in John chapter 10. If you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 10. And we were looking at this relationship between the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the perfect shepherd, and his sheep. This past week I had the privilege of meeting with many of you and many of your connect groups and listening to the discussions that were happening, the questions that were being asked, the digging into God's word. I was so blessed um, just to be able to sit in and just, for a, just to see how God is growing our church in the midst of John. There's a lot of deep theology in John. But also with our men's ministry, our men's ministry is is meeting Thursday mornings at 7.30, working through the book of Romans. They're reading through the book of Romans, working through commentary, and our women's ministry is working through 1 Peter, a book on glorifying God in the midst of our suffering. And so between those three, we are digging into some deep, deep theology, and God is so richly blessing us in the midst of that, so encouraging I wanted to give kind of a follow-up sermon. Last week, we we looked at this relationship of salvation between the shepherd and the sheep. And this week, I want to follow that up. And we see in verse 30 of John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. A reference to the Trinity. So this week, the whole sermon this morning is going to be focused on this relationship of salvation between the Trinity, each member of the Trinity, and us in our salvation. One more aspect, one more dynamic that we can add to the conversations and our discussions this week. So we're going to be looking at salvation according to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In John 5, verse 17, Jesus said, He answered them and said, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Another reference to the Trinity. All through the book of John and the other Gospels, Jesus continually references His work with the Father, He says, I am doing the Father's work. All that I say is on behalf of the Father, and nothing Jesus said was against the Father's will. In perfect unity, we see this between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we get started this morning in your handout, there's a a little three-question quiz for you. This is for your own theological purposes. I would encourage everyone to fill it out. Grab a pen in front of you from the seat back, and it's just the Trinity quiz. And I think it will help all of us in our study as we move through this and after you leave this place. But there's three questions. And I encourage you just on your own theological understanding to write these down. You're not turning them in. They're just for you. But the first question, God the Father's planned out salvation for, and there's A, B, or C. encourage you to write your answer there, A, B, or C. Secondly, God the Son accomplished salvation on the cross for, and then you have A, B, or C. And who does God the Holy Spirit draw to receive salvation, A, B, or C? I'll take a moment to have all of you fill that out. While you're doing so, my sermon this morning is titled, The Trinity, United or Divided in the Work of Salvation. The Trinity, united or divided in the work of salvation. We see all through passages in God's word 
of the Trinity. Going back in Genesis, we see where it says, let us make man in our image, a reference to the Trinity. My sermon this morning is not on the existence of the Trinity, it's on the relationship in the Trinity amongst one another in salvation to us. This is called our soteriology. This is the study of salvation. Soteriology is just the study of salvation. And so this is what theologians would be looking at, where salvation comes from, how does it occur, how do we receive it. So that's what we're going to look at from the perspective of the Trinity this morning. We see in Matthew 28, 19, where it says that we are called to go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father's not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. This has typically been portrayed in um, kind of an illustration that we have here this morning. And we see that the Father, this laser pointer is not bright, so I will stop using that. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all make up God. So the Spirit is God, the Son is God, and the Father is God. But we see that the Son is different from the Father. The Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. We also see that the Son seeks to glorify the Spirit. The Spirit seeks to glorify the Son. The Spirit seeks to glorify the Father. The Father seeks to glorify the Spirit. They are all working in perfect unity. I say this because in my past I had a theological mindset to where I believed all of that, but my theology was really broken in some areas, and and I looked at each member individually, which we're going to get to shortly. But that's the picture we need to see. And it's not one person with three different characteristics. Sometimes we say, "The, the Trinity is kind of like me. I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I'm a son. Right? I treat my wife differently than I treat my children, and I treat my parents differently than I treat my children, and, and vice versa, but I'm still one person. Well, that's really still one person with three different identities, kind of like bipolarism. That, that's not who God is. And so he's also not three different gods who make up one God. He is one God distinct in three natures. And so he is different in characteristics to each of the but they make up one God in essence. We see Jesus in Matthew 12 say, a house divided will not stand. Speaking of Satan's kingdom. And the same is true with God's kingdom. If each of these is God, then we would see God perfectly unified in everything he sets his mind to do. The son will not be running off to the right or your left while the father is going in a different direction. There should be complete unity. Example of this, I want to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll see perfect unity in this illustration with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is in regards to the aspect of the Father. Acts chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God the Father had a plan and it was to deliver up Jesus, whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. But we see there a definite plan and foreknowledge, God the Father. Acts 13.30, but God, the Trinity, raised him from the dead. We see the Son's aspect of this, John 2.19, where Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. We see John 10.18, Jesus again, no one takes my life from me but I lay it down on my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father, Jesus, carrying out the plan that God has established. They're working in perfect unity. We come to the Spirit, Romans 1.4. And this was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8.11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead... You see, there's a plan from the Father, it was accomplished by the Son, and the Spirit is the enabling power to do so. It says, the Spirit was whom raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive. In what? The Spirit. So, planned from the Father, accomplished by the Son, but brought about, made alive through the power of the Spirit. There is always one purpose, one focus. There's no miscommunication in the Trinity. A practical example of this, if we can, if we can go there, there's a certain member of this church who has extreme disunity in his home. I don't know of an illustration where there could be more disunity than this one. But you see, one of his family members, one of his daughters, attends FSU, while his other daughter attends UF. That, if I can find him, that would not happen. There he is. So, So there's not a better case of disunity, but that would never happen in the Trinity, right? I won't tell you which team the Trinity would go for, but that'll never happen in the Trinity, there's always perfect unity. Who, whoever the Trinity is for, that will be accomplished. And every member of the Trinity is working for that same plan. This is also how it should look in our purpose and our look at salvation. How the Trinity works in salvation. There should be one central focus. There should be everything perfectly unified. Sadly, I confess for most of my Christian life, I had looked at God the Father... I had looked at Jesus Christ the Son, and I had looked at the Holy Spirit, and I had looked at the text, and, and how I viewed the Father lined up with biblical text, how I viewed the Son seemed to line up with biblical text, and how I viewed the Spirit seemed to line up with biblical text, but I never looked at each and every member of the Trinity together. And so when I looked at all of them together, all of a sudden, they didn't line up with the perfect unity of one another. What does that mean, church? That I had a wrong interpretation of Scripture. Because if, if I see this and this and this, and it seems to line up to Scripture, but then I put them together and they don't fit, and the Bible says the Trinity should be perfectly unified, then somewhere in the application and in my interpretation of the Scriptures, looking at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I messed up in one, two, or all of those aspects. So that's really the goal this morning is for each and every single one of us to look at how we view the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relation to salvation. Do all members of the Trinity perfectly unify with each other and are they in alignment to the Word of God? That's what I want us to see. That's what I want all of us to to leave this place set out. You have a list of questions in front of you in your bulletin. I encourage you to, to fill those out at some point. And just begin thinking through 
Because it's so easy, it's so easy to miss and go unnoticed that maybe some of these aspects don't fit together. This is, I want to share just a common viewpoint of how this may look. This is, from my perspective, how it looked in my life at one time. But this is a look at each member of the Trinity's role in salvation of my former view. Look at God the Father first, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. To begin with, I I kind of saw God the Father as either God giving salvation to those whom he chose, or God the Father giving salvation to those who chose him. Either one of those. I kind of looked at that. And I came to the conclusion, God's plan for salvation must be for some people. Not all people, but some people. And we can't say, some of you are wondering, well, why can't we say all people? His plan for all people. Well, it causes some problems. Because if you say God's plan is for all people, then number one, we're called a universalist. And we think that everybody's going to heaven when we clearly see in Scripture not all are. Or secondly, we say God's plan is for all people, but God really doesn't accomplish his plan. So then we minimize the sovereignty of God. We do one of the two. Or third, we just say that that's his plan, but it's not that important of a plan or a plan he couldn't fulfill. Those are the difficulties. So I came to the conclusion, well, he, his, his ultimate plan that he wants to accomplish, unless I minimize God, has to be for some people. We see this in Scripture, Isaiah 46, 9, 10. This is what kind of made me land there. It says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about What I have planned to do, that I will do. So that's the difficulty in saying his plan is for all people if we know all people don't come to Christ because God says he accomplishes his plan. So that kind of leads us to something other than all people. So to summarize, a common teaching. I'm not teaching anything direct here yet. This is just to give us an interpretation of where I used to be, and I'm going to go through the Son and the Holy Spirit next, but God the Father's plan and purpose is salvation for some. We moved to Jesus, and I heard all growing up, and I heard all the time in church, this one is easy, it's routinely taught, Jesus Christ came not just for some, but for everyone. Jesus died on the cross for everyone, so common teaching number two, God the Son's purpose in salvation is for all, everyone. Then we move to the Holy Spirit and how I, I, I think many people treat the Holy Spirit, I know I did, is the Holy Spirit isn't for all or everyone, but the Holy Spirit is for anybody he can get. The Holy Spirit is kind of like the salesman of the Trinity. He's the one trying to grab people. He's trying to woo them to himself. He's trying to, he's really the salesperson trying to close the deal, doing as much exertion of the Trinity's will onto the individual that he can get to bring them to God. And so we summarize this point, God the Spirit's purpose in salvation is for as many as the Spirit can woo to himself. And if you notice, those three views of the Trinity, they're all going in different directions. It's like herding cats. And, and, and I looked and I could see scripture for each one of these, that I had, 
God the Father for this, Jesus for this, the Holy Spirit for this. But when you look at all three of them, you have God the Father for some, Jesus for all, and the Holy Spirit for whoever he can get. And that's not a perfect view of the Trinity. It's not perfectly unified. That's not each member of the Trinity working as God, working in perfect alignment, moving through all things. So what we need to see and what I hope to accomplish this morning is for us really thinking through how do we view the Trinity in our theology this morning. The first thing we need to understand is that salvation first arises from God himself, not man. Salvation was God's idea. It wasn't our idea. If, we didn't, if God didn't come up with it, we wouldn't be saved. But God did come up with salvation. He created it. He's the creator of salvation. It doesn't originate with man, which leads to our first point this morning. Salvation is the work of God. Salvation is the work of God. We see in John 1.12, I believe Terry, Pastor Terry preached on this back in on John 1.12 and John 1.13, but we see in John 1, 12, if you would turn there, this would be one of those verses that I just looked just at this verse and applied it to God the Father or Jesus Christ. In John 1, 12, we see where it says, But as many as received him, being Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So if you take just that verse by itself, it will lead you all different ways regarding the Father and the Son. But if you read verse 13 right after it, it will completely change the direction. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born, meaning born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Romans nine sixteen. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 2 Timothy 1, 8, 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. I hope you see salvation is the work of God. So I want us to look at how each member of the Trinity works in this salvation being the work of God. No member of the Trinity is redundant. No member of the Trinity is not needed, and they all work in perfect unity. So here's the three points that I want to share. Number one. Salvation was planned by the Father. Secondly, the Father's plan was accomplished by the Son. Thirdly, the Son's accomplishment was applied by the Spirit. Now, this is how I view it and many others view it. There may be other interpretations of how the Trinity works in salvation, but I don't know of any that actually show the unity of the Trinity and follow the rest of God's teaching and that they fall in perfect alignment other than this view. And so if you have another view that has perfect unity in the Trinity and according to God's word, find me afterwards. I would love to hear it. But this is what I see and many others see from the text, that we see the Trinity working in perfect unity in our salvation. 
Number one, salvation planned from the Father, and that plan is carried out and accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. And that accomplishment on the cross is then applied to us through the Spirit. So rather than going and grabbing individual Bible verses and trying to apply that to each of these, we're going to look at whole passages four or five passages that walk through the plan of the Father, the accomplishment of the Son, and then the application of the Spirit, all in that passage. So we can see here perfect unity. Ephesians chapter 1, let's turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, encourage you to grab a pen or a highlighter. Incredible when you look through this verse looking for the Trinity. Just the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Plan of the Father, accomplishment of the Son, application of the Spirit. Beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1. I'll give everyone a moment to to turn there. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful to Christ Jesus... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Already bringing in the Trinity here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here in verse 4, we're going to see salvation planned from the Father. Verse 4, even as he, God the Father, chose us, that's a planning of salvation, In him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Moving on to verse 5, we see it again, the planning of our salvation from the Father. In love, he, God the Father, predestined us, planning of salvation, for adoption. Adoption is a planning of, from the Father to adopt the Son. And then we see as sons through Jesus Christ. Here we see Jesus Christ working in perfect unity with the plan of the Father. The plan of adoption was from the Father, but notice we are made sons through whom? Jesus Christ. The plan is of the Father, but we're actually made sons through Jesus Christ. It says, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 7, in Him, Jesus, the Son... We have redemption through his blood. So plan of the Father, but we have redemption, not from the Father, but we have redemption through the plan that was carried out, accomplished by the Son, his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he, God the Father, lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of the Father's will, the plan of the Father, according to his The Father's purpose. You notice plan, purpose, predestined, it's all from the Father. The planning of the Father, but carried out perfectly through Christ the Son. Verse 10, as a plan, a plan set forth by the Father. For the fullness of time to unite all things in himself, things in heaven and on earth. In him, verse 11, Jesus, the accomplishment on the cross, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined, there's that plan from the Father again, according to the purpose of him, the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we see the Father working all things for his purposes, his will, his plan, but it's accomplished through whom, church? 
Jesus, right? So perfectly unified, Father and Son, verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So salvation, which was accomplished by Jesus, is now applied to us by whom? The Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the guarantee, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that salvation that was accomplished on the cross by Christ, but was planned by the Father. Who is the inheritance of our, or who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Perfect unity in the Trinity in our salvation, planned to the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied by the Spirit. There's no division there. Whom the Father planned to be saved, to whom the Son died to be saved, and for whom those that application arrived through the Spirit is in perfect unity. Look at a few more scriptures. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. As I mentioned, our women's ministry is working through 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we're going to walk through this scripture and show the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just in this scripture and how it relates to our salvation. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, that is God the Father, plan of God the Father, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So, I want to take a moment and and share about this word foreknowledge. This word foreknowledge many times is interpreted as a foreseeing of a future event from God's perspective. But I want to say foreknowledge, if you study it out, is not foreseeing. It is something completely different. And so it actually is completely destroying what foreknowledge is if we see it as foreseeing. There's two major problems with seeing foreknowledge as God simply foreseeing a future event. Number one, the Bible teaches foreknowledge as a relational term. It's not a foreseeing of a future event. It's a relational term. This word foreknowledge has the root meaning of knowing, knowing someone, intimacy, knowing someone. This is why you see in the Old Testament, Genesis 4.25, and Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. It was an intimacy of a covenant relationship between the two. It wasn't simply a knowing about or a future knowing. It was a intimate knowing relationship based on a covenant. Every time in the Old Testament these words are used, and in the New Testament, it's based on knowing someone. Matthew 7, 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. An intimacy, an intimate relationship. Jesus did not know them. There was not a covenant established. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. It's the same Root meanings here. It's a covenantal relationship. There is intimacy. It's a relationship built on that. It's a covenant by God to another party, and God always honors his covenant based on his promises. This is how God, through his foreknowledge, loved us. 
It's not God foreseeing that we one day would love him. God is showing us that he is loving us before we ever showed a love for him. If we see it as God only loving us because we chose to love him, we completely undermine the meaning of the word. It's saying God loved us, as we read earlier, with an everlasting love. A love that did not begin with us, a love that began with him in a relationship, a covenantal relationship. A second problem with interpreting foreknowledge as simply foreseeing a future event, it it almost makes it seem like God needs to learn something. And God is outside of time. He's already in the future. He doesn't need to learn anything. To foresee something means God needs to learn something, and that's a heresy. The Bible teaches God knows all things. He knows all things, beginning and end. He's both at the beginning, the middle, and the end. God doesn't need to foresee anything because he already knows all things. He cannot learn anything in the future. So let's continue in, in 1 Peter 1.12. I just didn't want us to get hung up on this word foreknowledge of God the Father. But we've seen God the Father in the midst of planning our salvation. Next we see verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit is doing the work of sanctification in the believer. He is applying. The only way we can have sanctification is through the cross of Jesus Christ. So the Spirit is applying the accomplishment of the cross to our behalf. From Jesus Christ, the Spirit is now applying it to us. They're working in perfect unity. And then it goes on, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. So we've seen salvation planned from the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied to the believers by the Spirit. Jude chapter 1. I love this. I never saw this in Jude chapter 1. But Jude chapter 1, verse 1, shows the Trinity, and it shows the Trinity working in perfect alignment, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yes, if some of you are wondering... It always is awkward taking a drink while you're not turning your pages in your Bibles. Some of you are are focused, and I try to do that to intentionally give you some time. Some of you are thinking, well, it's only one verse. It's going to be on the screen. I understand. So it'll be on the screen, Jude chapter 1, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who have been called, there's the Father, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We see calling of God the Father, accomplishment by the blood of Christ, and maybe you're wondering, where's the Holy Spirit in this verse? I don't see sanctification, I don't see a mention of the Holy Spirit, but it says, one of the names in the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the helper, one who is called alongside to help. And we see in Jude chapter 1, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept. The Holy Spirit is doing the work, keeping the believer. He's keeping him. He's doing this onward applying of the work of Christ, planned from the Father, the work of Christ. The Spirit is doing the application, keeping those who have been called. They've been called by the Father, secured through Christ the Son, and they're kept, made secure by the Holy Spirit, the perfect Trinity working in perfect unity. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be working through a couple of verses here. But here again, we're going to see God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit planning, accomplishing, and then also applying that accomplishment. 
Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth. You see God doing the sending. He's doing the planning. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And the son was sent to what? Accomplish the purpose of the father. To redeem those, this is the plan of Christ, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as son. So the father sends the son, the son to redeem those who have been sent. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. We see a working of the Holy Spirit bringing this about. God is the choreographer, the planner of our salvation. We see at God's appointed time sending the Son and then the Spirit at the precise and appropriate time in order to bring us into His family. Many of us think, and this ties into this, I know I did for many years, and it was really until this last conference that I really saw an understanding of this, that God really doesn't love us except for the, what Jesus did on the cross. That if it wasn't for Christ, there's no love from God towards me, but it's only because of what Christ did on the cross that God can love me. John Owen said this, At the best, many Christians think there is no sweetness or love at all of God towards us except what was purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus. Maybe you believe that God loves you only because of what Jesus Christ came and did for you. And it's on that basis God loves you. And that would be wrong. It would be wrong. Because we forget it's not only what Christ did for us on the cross is love, but he came for the very purpose of what? He loved us. It was he was sent out of a love, he died out of a love, and he was resurrected out of a love. He didn't come to those whom he didn't love, to die. He came for those whom he loved and died on their behalf as well. So it's only partially true that it's the death, but it's also the whole coming of Jesus. This is why it goes back that this foreknowledge is so important that God made a covenant and he did it before the foundations of the earth and that he loved us. At the conference, a startling statement was made that stuck with me. And after I heard it, my mind went spinning and I couldn't leave this point. Dr. Ian Hamilton said, the reason God will never stop loving you is that he never began. The reason God will never stop loving you is that he never began. And, and I, I thought about that. How is that possible? I always, see, I always saw that, that I was away from God, separated from God. God was angry or upset at me until I came to the point of salvation and then God loved me. But we miss it if that's what we believe. Because it's that he came for us from the very beginning of time, set apart his son as a plan for us to redeem us. He sent his son with us on his mind to begin with. It wasn't at the moment of our salvation that God loved us. It was, it was an everlasting love. This is what Jeremiah 31.3 speaks of. I have loved you with an everlasting love. A love that never ends. The reason God will never stop loving you is that it never began. God's love for you didn't happen at the moment of your conversion. It's always been. You are loved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And it was accomplished 
on the cross. Jesus came because he loved you. He died on the cross because he loved you. He rose again because he loved you. What a glorious picture of the Trinity. When you see these deep truths of what this means and what the scripture is pointing out to from beginning to end. He doesn't love us just because he foresees us loving him. He loved us from the very beginning. And everlasting love can only exist in this manner because the Trinity is working perfectly in unified steps with one another from the planning of our salvation to the accomplishment of that salvation on the cross to the application of that accomplishment from Jesus Christ in our lives by the Holy Spirit. All three perfectly God, perfectly unified, working in our lives. So I pray this morning that I've given you another perspective to see the Trinity in your life, that we can take these things and and look and break apart our view of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and look through, is the way that I see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, do they line up not only with Scripture, but do they line up with what the Scriptures say how they should be unified? You have those questions. I encourage you to to fill those out and see if the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working in perfect unity. And then take that back to God's Word. I pray that this morning digs you deeper into God's Word. Don't just take what I've said and run with it, but bring it back to God's Word and search the Scriptures to see if the plan of the Father, the accomplishment of the Son, and the application, the, the being applied by the Spirit, fits according to God's Word. Would you pray with me this morning? God, what a beautiful picture it is of the Trinity. God, that you are perfectly united. That you are one God, three persons, distinct, but one in character and nature, Essence, you're one God. God, we we know it's hard to understand, explain who that is, but we see it in Scripture, so we know that it's true, that there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of you work to glorify one or the other. God, I, I pray for the time we've had. God, may, if I've spoken anything wrongly, may you erase that. God, may you apply through the Holy Spirit your word in our hearts and in our minds. God, may what we've heard grow our love for you. The glory you will receive, the glory you are receiving. God, help us to see this relationship of the Trinity, of the Father planning our salvation. The Son accomplishing this perfect plan on the cross from the Father. And the Spirit applying what was accomplished on our behalf through us, through sanctification and justification. Which goes back to the planning of the Father, glorifying you in all these things. God, I pray for us as we study your word. I pray for this week that you may encourage us. God, that you may continue to grow us. May we glorify you. I pray for those who are struggling this morning, who are dealing with sickness or health issues or financial issues. God, help them to know and to comfort them because you know exactly what they're going through. You have never left them. You're right beside them in the midst of of the situations going on. God, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. Your love for us didn't begin when we loved you. It began long before that. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. God, we give you praise for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.